Thank you, Josh, for reading for us this morning. If you're not already there, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25 uh, for this morning's sermon, just as Josh read for us. Our sermon title for this morning is Despising the Promise. Despising the Promise. Before we get into it, if you're just joining us or maybe you've been out for a few weeks, I want to catch you up on where we've been. Last week we went from Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 25. So it was a short sermon, uh, short and sweet like they always are. But we looked at how God shows His authority and grace as Creator and Lord as He speaks, acts, and redeems that which was lost by the fall. Remember, God created all things and they were good. God created man and the only thing that was not good was that he was alone. So he created a helper for him, uh, Eve. God set up stipulations for them to live in covenantal obedience to him. And the only stipulation that they were given was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet Eve, tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve both took and eat and caused this disastrous calamity. And it's in Genesis 3, verse 15, where we see this promise that while there will certainly be enmity between the serpent and the woman, there will be victory. And at the seed of the woman, the promised one, the Messiah who would come, will set all things right. And it's that trajectory that leads us to where we are now, because we've seen that through sin and the fall, there was need for justice. There was a need for judgment. God sent a flood. He covenanted himself with Noah and with his family to protect them and to to save them through the means of the ark. Uh, Then we see that sin continues to reign, even though the flood uh, judged those on the face of the earth. And sin continued to reign, and it was in Genesis chapter 12 where we see uh, the, the more prominent of this story. We saw Abram being called out by God to live in covenant obedience to him, that he would bless Abram, that he would make him a father of many nations, that an heir would be uh, one who is the ruler of kings, and all of these amazing blessings that we see centered in Abram, who is then called Abraham. And here we find ourselves in Genesis 25, where Abraham has now died. In Genesis 25, verse 12, we see a genealogy. Uh, the Hebrew word, and I will butcher it, is toledot, that it is a genealogy. I believe it's the seventh of 11 that happen in the book of Genesis. And we see the genealogy not of Abraham's son, Isaac, but we see it of his first son, Ishmael. And Ishmael, we see, has sons. Ishmael is the father of 12. They go off, and this is not a sermon on Ishmael and the Ishmaelites and all of the kingdoms and and religious sects that come off of of Ishmael. Uh, But we see that the story of Abraham does continue through Ishmael. The text doesn't want to whitewash that, but... The story of Ishmael in this specific significance stops at verse 18. That should clue for us that if we are looking for the promised one, it's not to be found in Ishmael or his descendants. And so in verse 19, the meat of this text, we see the continued promise in Abraham's son, 
Isaac, the promised son, the seed of his wife, Sarah, who was promised to him. And we'll see Isaac serves in this kind of transitional role. Because even when we see Isaac set set foot on stage, we see that Isaac is not really the even key of this passage. But what? He serves as the bridge. That from Abraham, the promise continues to Isaac. And through Isaac, the promise continues through who? And here we have another genealogy, another Toledot. We see that this genealogy of Abraham doesn't continue through Ishmael. It continues through Isaac. And through Isaac, we would think whoever the firstborn is of Isaac would be the one whom the promise would be fulfilled in. But that's not what we see. We see, just like we've seen in other passages in Genesis, that Isaac's wife struggles to conceive. Just as we've seen throughout the book of Genesis that God has the authority as a creator and Lord to do specific things. As we heard in Sunday school, God can do what he wants. Just as God protected those in Abimelech's house from being able to conceive, so too does God hold the ability for Rebekah to conceive. And the text picks up in verse 20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from, the, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. This is where we see where the genealogy of Abraham through Isaac will be rooted. And I want to just back up briefly, because I'm getting too excited and too ahead of myself, that we need to remember, just as Josh told us, these are the words of Moses. Moses is writing to the people of God uh, after the Exodus. He's giving them, he's recounting for them the beginning of all of these things, putting God on the pedestal as creator and as Lord and the one who alone is to be worshipped and the one who is to be trusted. And he's also reminding this post-Exodus people that this God who can be trusted has chosen them through their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's this continuation where we find this context of our passage that while Isaac prays for his wife Rebekah to conceive, the Lord hears his prayer and she is able to conceive. Before going much further, I want to tell you our main point. It's simple. Despising the promise leads to separation. Despising the promise leads to separation. Despising the promise leads to separation. So Isaac was 40 when he prayed for his wife to conceive. The Lord was receptive to his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. Verse 22, but the children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. To the immediate readers, they would have understood the responsibility of the firstborn. Remember the ten plagues that God sent over Egypt, those who kept the Israelites in captivity? What was it that the, one of the final plagues was to strike down the firstborn male of the household? Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Deuteronomy 21 rather, verse 17, it says that the firstborn is the one who receives a double portion, that there is a instinctual and a requirement within families that the firstborn son receives the birthright. It is to Esau who the promise should have, in worldly sense, been passed on to. Why? Because he came out first. Maybe if you're thinking, this seems ridiculous, Sean. Why are we talking about twins and the timing of which they came out? Well, the text is doing this. The text is drawing our mind to realizing that God operates on a totally different wavelength than we operate. Just as Isaiah picks up, that his ways are higher than our ways. Can the clay look at the maker and say, don't make me this thing? God chooses who he chooses. And later in Romans, the Apostle Paul in chapter 8 and chapter 9 gives us this incredibly rich theology of the choosing of Jacob over Esau, going to the point of saying, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You want a question for the questions night next Sunday. Why did God hate Esau? We'll see some of those things later in our text. That Esau, compelled by these other things, God chooses Jacob. So the strife that was taking place in Rebekah's womb was the same strife that would inhabit and would continue to inflame this family for the next hundreds, if not thousands of years. We see that it was Esau, not Jacob, who was to be the human heir of the inheritance of his father Isaac. One writer says, according to ancient Middle Eastern customs, this meant that Esau would have the rights and privileges of the firstborn. As readers of this story, the Israelites were acquainted with the firstborn birthright. God's law prescribed that the firstborn receive a double portion of all that he, the father, has. Since he is the first issue of his virility, the right of the firstborn is his. But the writer continues, But with Esau, the Lord overturns human customs and even his own law. The Lord predicts and the Lord speaks that the elder shall serve the younger. Esau was the rightful heir of the physical inheritance of his father Isaac. But we'll see later that Esau neither receives the inheritance of Isaac 
nor the inheritance of the promise made to Isaac. And so the story continues. Verse 28 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Over the next 25 25 chapters of Genesis, we are going to be uh, assaulted by familial strife. And let me just say, verse 28 is not good. The father loving one son more, the mother loving another son, that'll work out great. It always does. No, it's horrible. I have a favorite son and a favorite daughter. It works out that way. But I do not have a favorite child. Not yet. (laughs) This will not go well. This proclamation from when Esau and Jacob were in the womb will continue. What was in the womb will continue the strife. The same proclamation of the enmity that is proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 continues. But the Lord is sovereign over these things. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. Let me just say the character of Jacob will be in the forefront of our minds over the next few chapters. It's uh, not enough for us to dive into why Jacob would do these things uh, other than he is named aptly, that he is a heel grabber. He is continually striving with all of his earthly might to subdue his older brother. And the thing about Jacob is that God is on his side. For God has chosen Jacob. So it is Esau, not Jacob, who was the human heir of the inheritance of his father Isaac. It's uh, Esau that the greater inheritance is not that of Isaac's property, but of the promise made to Abraham and affirmed in Isaac. In this story, Esau, in the moment, in the blink of an eye, trades his birthright, makes an oath to his brother Jacob in the moment of thinking that he was going to be famished to the point of death. He says, what good is this to me? Go ahead, take it in exchange for the stew. Esau neither receives the inheritance of Isaac nor the inheritance of the promise made to Abraham. For it is Jacob who receives the inheritance and later we'll see receives the blessing of his father and is the heir of the promise made 
to Abraham. The whole crux of this story is in verses 29 through 34, where Esau is the main character who trades his birthright for some stew. We see that Esau forsakes or despises his birthright and went his own way. He ate, he drank, he got up, and he went away. This writing in the Hebrew is for uh, emphatic to be able to show that this is something that he, uh, in, as one author says, in a wanton manner, in a complete and total disregard for what the birthright means. What he's saying is, while I'm still living, the birthright being my father's son matters nothing. I don't know if you've ever had lentil stew. It could even be a Texas Roadhouse T-bone. It could be whatever you want. The birthright of your father should be in much more great value than that food. But We see the end of the story that Esau goes out and he despised. One author says, to despise something means to treat it as worthless or to hold it in contempt. He regretted having his birthright. In one sense, like the older brother in the prodigal son story, or the younger brother in the prodigal son story, he says, cash me out, dad. Give me what's mine and let me go my own way. I don't need to be a part of your family. By so doing, Esau cuts himself off from the promise of God made to his grandfather Abraham and seen through his father Isaac. We see this continue that Esau is given this other name, Edom. Edom is a nation that will plague the Israelites for hundreds of years. That it was Edom that when the Israelites came out of the Exodus, they asked for passage through the king's highway. And the king of Edom said, you do that and we kill you. Can we have water? No. The Edomites were constantly and continually in opposition to the chosen people of God. Brothers and sisters, despising the promise led to the separation of Esau. Not only was he cut off, he chose to be cut off. It was through this choosing where we see that Esau will plague his brother Jacob, but it is Jacob who the Lord has chosen. And it is Jacob who will be the one who has the authority over his brother. It's through Jacob that the promises of God will continue. It's through Jacob's offspring that the promises of God will continue. We'll see this up and down roller coaster of Jacob's life. Jacob the swindler. uh, Jacob the wrestler against God. Jacob, all of these things that you think, why on earth would God choose that guy? Because God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. You may sit in the pew and say, why would God choose me? I might even be worse than Jacob. Because God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. Who? Not through a physical inheritance or birthright, but through a spiritual one. 
that through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the promise made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's through Jesus that the promise of eternal life and forgiveness of sins is fulfilled. That anyone who believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Do you see how in this earthly sense, Esau despising the promise, it leads to his separation. But when we connect that to the reality of the fulfillment being in Christ, that if we despise our inheritance as believers, if we despise this promise, if we despise the Lord Jesus Christ, it leads to a far greater separation. That in this sense, despising the promise of Jesus Christ through grace, by grace, through faith, leads to an eternal separation. Despising the promise leads to separation. For Esau, it seems minuscule on the surface, but for Esau, it was continual. That he was not, when you look in the book of Hebrews, he is not listed as a person of faith. What does that show us? That not only does Esau not receive the physical inheritance of Isaac, but he doesn't receive the spiritual inheritance either. That Esau does not, by faith, trust in the promises of Yahweh. But Jacob does. I want to give one application. And you may think, it's 1147. What are we doing getting into applications so fast? Because the application is really where we need to sit. The application is this. Don't forsake eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Don't forsake eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Pleasures. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17, gives this warning. Make sure, speaking to the church, that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for for a single meal. Brothers and sisters, I want to break this down in two categories. First, we could forsake the promise. Maybe in this room, for an unbeliever, we say this is not significant. This is not important. This is not that big of a deal. It involves your eternal resting place will you trust christ will you turn from your sin recognizing that he was the holy son the sinless son the perfect son whose blood made atonement for your sin will you do that You can despise the promise in that you don't choose grace, that you don't choose to trust in Christ. You can refuse and despise this promise leading to an eternal separation. That's the application for an unbeliever. And the call is trust in Jesus. 
Trust in Jesus, whose blood has made a way, who stepped down from heaven to forgive the sins of the world. And you are called to trust. You are called to faith. You are called to obedience. Trust in Him this morning so that you will not be separated from a holy and loving God. He must do something with sin. And He fully pays for it on the cross. Trust in that work this morning. That is the call for the unbeliever. For the believer... What does not forsaking eternal promises for immediate pleasures look like? We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. That we can be walking with Jesus and in a moment, in the blink of an eye, just as Esau traded his birthright for a pitiful bowl of stew. Have you ever had lentil stew? It's not a main course. And it may seem frivolous, and we may say, even I think the writer of Hebrews, I don't think it's just me throwing shade on Esau, I think it's the writer of Hebrews also saying, for just a bowl of stew. As one pastor, me, might say, what an idiot. We do that same thing. In the moment of an eye, when we see that our future, rooted in Christ and faith in Him, is eternity in heaven where there is no suffering, where there is no sin, where the holiness of Christ rests and is the light that anyone might need. We take our eyes off of that and we turn so often from eternal promises to immediate pleasures. So often. It could be in the moment of heated argument where we think or say something that is so untrue that it comes from the pit of hell, but in the moment we say it. We might demean someone's character. We might wish ill of them. We forsake eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Perhaps to go a little bit deeper, I've mentioned to some that I had some test results done a couple weeks ago that require a, a, a change of diet. So when I see Daniel back there munching on some gummy somethings, I'm like, oh, that looks good. Don't let me get those gummy somethings because in a physical sense, that is bad. But we are told within Scripture not to fuel our flesh. What a silly analogy are gummy candies in light of eternity. We say or think ill of one another. We choose to sin in ways where we forsake eternal promises. I think one immediate way that is so divisive in our culture is going our own way. Making ourselves the authority, we forsake eternal promises. What does that look like? I know the Bible says this, but surely there's a loophole somewhere, so I'm going to do that. What are we doing? We're making ourselves the authority, not God. We are forsaking His eternal promises that come with requirements of obedience. For what? For the immediate pleasures of us being our own king. For us being our own 
God. The writer of Hebrews also picks up on the fact uh, other writers also say that this is a sensual choice. That the sensualness of Esau's empty stomach leads him to make the most rash decision on the face of the planet. Hebrews picks up going one step further from sensual to sexual. One of the easiest ways that I can think of a believer forsaking eternal promises for immediate pleasures is by indulging in pornography. There is no greater enemy sent from Satan himself from the pit of hell than pornography. I think it's something like 78% of men are indulging in that. And it's not just men, though I certainly want to speak to the men on that. Brothers and sisters, do not forsake the eternal pleasures or the eternal promises for the immediate pleasures that will ruin you bit by bit. It will take you down to your core. And where we see in Scripture that sin breeds death. It will kill you. Because all sin will kill you. Do not forsake the glorious eternal promises of God in Jesus Christ for these immediate pleasures. Maybe you say these three analogies don't don't hit me. Well, then what is it? What is it that you take your eyes from Jesus to the pleasures of the world and you say the world, the flesh, and the devil is more glorious, more immaculate than Jesus on the cross for my sin? Whatever that is, Take your eyes from that and look to Him on the cross. Don't forsake eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Brothers and sisters, how glorious is Jesus in your eyes? How glorious is Jesus in your heart? Do those things well up for you an affection that causes you to forsake that sin? For the writer of Hebrews doesn't list these different things. He says, whatever sin ensnares you. Don't forsake eternal promises for immediate pleasures. For that is what we see in Esau. Leading to the separation of his family. Leading to turmoil and strife that we will see over the next few chapters, and ultimately the worst thing that happens to Esau is he is apart from the promises of God. So friend, if you are here and maybe you fit in the first category where you say, Jesus doesn't seem that glorious to me, but I want him to. Know that I'm praying for that. And maybe you fit in the second category where perhaps this week, perhaps this morning, you've forsaken eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Let me continue to call you to look to Jesus. Look to the promised one who one day, finally and forever, will crush the serpent's head. And we won't have to worry about these temporary or immediate pleasures, for we will have a godly, 
a Godward desire for Him and Him alone. And until that day, may we strive to long to be more like Him. May we not be like Esau, who in a blink of an eye trades his birthright for stew. But may we trust in Christ. Cling to that, looking to Him, and not forsaking the eternal promises for immediate pleasures. Because when we look at the riches of the promises of God made to us in Christ, they are immeasurable. They are so good to us, beloved, that the psalmist says they're sweeter than honey on my lips. They're more worthwhile than gold. They're more important than anything I can ever think of. Maybe the application for us is that we would pray that the promises of God would be that to us. That when we look at the scales of what is more important, eternal promises or immediate pleasures, there would be no choosing. For it is eternal promises. The promises of God made to us in Christ His Son are far more desirable than anything else. May that be true of us. Let's pray.